in Christmas of 2021, uh, I got my son tickets to go to the, his first Warriors game. It was very exciting for us. He's been a basketball fan with his daddy for a little while, but we were very excited to, to take him for Christmas. And, and so as a surprise Christmas gift to him that year, he thought that the next year he asked daddy, can we get tickets to the Warriors game next year? And so last year he was eagerly waiting for the same gift. And you can imagine his surprise uh, when he received instead, uh, to flip the next slide, tickets to uh, Coco Melon Live. Next slide, please. <laughs> and if, for those of you who are not parents, Coco Melon is this overstimulated live music videos uh, for toddlers and babies. And uh, we, we ha my, my son knows that his little brother enjoys it. He himself, uh, not so much. And obviously, I was trolling him a little bit. I did actually get him Warriors tickets, for those of you who think parent cruelty. But that look on his face says it all. I said, smile, like, and show me, show me the, your Christmas gift. And you can struggle, you can see that struggle, that the struggle is real. His face says it all. He's struggling to appear happy and thankful when he didn't receive what he was hoping for, what he was waiting for. And I want to propose to you this morning that Christmas is a season of waiting. Whether you are five years old or 85 years old, we all eagerly await Christmas when gifts are given, when delicious meals are shared and eaten together, when family and loved ones gather, when we all rest somewhat from school and work, when conflicts are temporarily set aside in our homes, when there is a more generous spirit of kindness and love towards one another. Now, for some of us, we might not even be waiting for all the pleasantries of Christmas. We might be carrying crushing anxieties and burdens, loneliness or loss over this past year. But we're also wishing and waiting for something better. For the 11 million Ukrainians, 200,000 Israelis, 1.5 million Palestinians who've lost their homes or a loved one, they're also waiting for help or hope this Christmas season. Please pray for peace. And I want you to understand that waiting is more than just about passing the time. It's about anticipation, expectation. That whether you're in a season of celebration or devastation, it's hoping for something better to come. And so the question for you this morning is, what are you really waiting for this Christmas? If you have a Bible, you want to turn in it to Luke chapter 2, the Gospel of Luke chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there are Bibles in the seat in front of you. You can pull that out. And if you don't own a Bible, take that one home. Those are our Bibles to give away to people who don't have one. Otherwise, it'll be up on the big screen. But in Luke chapter 2, let me set the scene for you. This is after the miraculous birth of Jesus, quietly fulfilling hundreds of years of prophecy about this long-promised king and a kingdom of God to come. And yet we find that people are still waiting at this juncture in the story. And so, as good Jewish parents, Mary and Joseph, they bring Jesus to the temple of God in Jer Jerusalem 40 days after his birth to present their son to the Lord. It's kind of like a child dedication ceremony. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, on their way into the temple, they encounter two people who are patiently, desperately waiting 
for the promises of God to hopefully appear to be sent through this child. So let's jump into the story, Luke chapter 2, starting from verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, that's what we're talking about, about presenting your child to the Lord, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. Let's stop right there. We'll jump into his words later. So in verses 25 and 26, we encounter this wonderful man named Simeon. He's described as righteous and devout man. That means that he loves God, he trusts God, he walks with God, and that he's also described as being filled with the Holy Spirit. That means that he experiences the presence and the Spirit of God in a very powerful personal way, so much so that, that God actually speaks to him, revealing that he will not die before he has seen the Lord's Christ. Now, for those of you who are not so churchy, uh, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It is a Greek word, and in their original Hebrew language, it's a translation of the word Messiah, which means anointed one. It's talking about a king, the one who would be anointed as the king. And so Messiah, in the rich context of prophetic scripture, and historic anticipation and waiting is described as this king that will be sent by God, but to suffer and deliver his people, to be a savior for them. And so that's why the Bible says here that Simeon is waiting for the consolation or the comforting, depending on your translation, of Israel. He's waiting for this long-awaited Messiah who comforts desperate, hurting people. You see, for Simeon and all the Jewish people at this time, they're in a season where there's very little hope. The Jewish people were once again under the subjugation of a foreign power, under the iron boot of the Roman Empire. And even though historically they know that God has consistently liberated Israel from oppression throughout history time and time again, like for many of you who've been joining us on Sundays, like from the Babylonian Empire. And yet at this point in history, it doesn't seem like there's any help coming. No prophet had preached. No book of the Bible had been written. No direct word from God had been spoken to the people. God had been silent for about 400 years. So we don't know how long Simeon has been waiting at this point, but I want you to imagine him day after day after day, searching, hoping, praying, waiting that one day he would lay his eyes on this Messiah, this comforter. And in verses 27 and 28, that day, his intimacy with God and the Spirit of God pays off as the Holy Spirit leads him to go into the temple of God that day. And out of the corner of his eye, he sees this humble blue-collar couple that no one else notices, no one else is giving a second glance at and then his eyes land on their baby. And immediately, he knows, this is the one that I've been waiting for. 
that this is the one that was promised. And he scoops that baby up into his arms, baby Jesus into his arms. I'm not sure how parents would feel about that if a stranger came up to you and suddenly grabbed your baby. And then in joyfulness, in weeping, he bursts into this praise of God. Why? Because by faith, Simeon has been waiting in desperation, with expectation, trusting that God does indeed keep his promises, that he will do what he says he will to bring comfort and consolation to his suffering people through this coming Messiah. And with all the disaster and despair and violence that we see in our world, sometimes in our own lives or our own homes, I contend that probably you and I are also searching, waiting for comfort. And this moment Jesus' coming is the fulfillment of 700-year-old prophecies about this coming Messiah. Isaiah chapter 9, it describes him as the birth of the Emmanuel. In the Hebrew language, that means God with us. In other words, a God who is not distant and detached from our suffering, who is not aloof and ignoring or apathetic towards you. In Isaiah chapter 61, that this Messiah will come and bind the brokenhearted, comfort all who mourn, that he comes to us, he cares for us, and he comforts us in the real heartaches that you experience in this life. And so like Simeon, those who are waiting for comfort will receive it from the coming of Christ. That his comfort is available to anyone who turns to Jesus in faith, let me paint a picture for you. After their daughter was born, a Christian named Nancy Guthrie, she knew that something was wrong. Though they had named their baby Hope, let's pull up that next slide, their family didn't have much to be hopeful about. You see, Hope was born with club feet, experienced extreme lethargy, couldn't feed on the milk from her mother, and as they brought her into doctors for test after test after test, she was finally diagnosed with Zellweger syndrome. It's a rare metabolic disorder where the cells in your body, they can't get rid of the toxic substances from your body to cleanse it. And so you're slowly poisoning yourself day after day after day. And what happened with this little baby is that as they talked about this with, over with the doctors, there is no treatment. There's no cure. And in fact, most babies who are diagnosed with this disease have less than six months to live. So in Susan's own words, and Nancy's own words, excuse me, for a, they had hope for 199 days. We loved her. We enjoyed her. We shared her with everyone that we could. We held her during her seizures caused by the disease. And then at day 199, we let her go. After burying her, they were racked with the doubt and the despair that comes with going through such terrible circumstances in life. And yet, out of desperation, more than out of piety, they turned towards Jesus and they discovered a very quiet truth. 
that not all circumstances, if you follow Jesus, not all circumstances in life are going to be good. But the trust that Jesus is. They found that I thought I expected my faith to make it hurt less, but it doesn't. But in Christ, we knew that God became flesh so that he would experience loss and suffering and sorrow just like us, and that he comes alongside us, and he gave us an incredible amount of strength, encouragement, and comfort. And in Nancy's own words, I experienced one of the worst things that can possibly happen to a human being in life. What I didn't find, I, I found that I was not strong enough, that I can handle it. But I have found that God's promise is true, that his grace is sufficient. And so now when I read, my grace is sufficient for you, from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, I believe it, not only because Jesus said it, but because I ex actually experienced that from him in the midst of my darkest nights. And what I need you to hear is that Jesus' coming is not only consolation in your temporary pain today, that when he returns, his comfort lasts forever, that there's coming a time when he will heal every hurt, that he will right every wrong. And so even though Advent is a celebration of his first coming, we also celebrate and anticipate and wait for his return. Revelation chapter 21 tells us that God will dwell with us, God with us. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, for the old order of things passes away. And behold, he declares, I make all things new. Some of us need to be comforted by Jesus today. Christmas is hard for you because you're thinking about someone you've lost or something that you've lost. And so if you come carrying hurt or loneliness or anger or emptiness, Jesus wants to encourage you with gentle, loving, enduring comfort that only he can give. If you will welcome him this day as Simeon did. Well, how does this work exactly? How did Simeon receive comfort? He wasn't comforted because the baby Jesus suddenly miraculously sat up, patted him on the back. There, there, Simeon. Like, things are going to be all right. I know your life is hard. It's going to get better. How could this child possibly bring comfort to Simeon? Let's read on. Verse 29. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, that means non-Jewish people like you and I, and for glory to your people Israel. <clears throat> and his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So in verses 29 and 30, Simeon tells us, he's, he's talking to God in some sense, you know what, 
I'm old now. I've been hanging on to life. I've been hanging on to your promises, Lord. And now I'm ready to go because I've lived long enough to finally see your salvation, he says. And I want you to get this picture. He doesn't see salvation in a set of religious rules to follow. That's not what's going to save him. He doesn't see salvation in a political power that will liberate Israel from Roman oppression. No, what he sees salvation in is a person, this little child. And so in verse 31 and 32, he declares that this salvation, is this Savior, he's not just going to save people, the Jewish people from Roman oppression. There is something far greater, far bigger going on for all peoples, for everyone, everywhere. He's comforted because the Messiah has come to rescue, to restore, to ultimately save people from death, despair, and destruction to something far better, something much more hopeful, to life, to love, to restoration and reconciliation with God forever. And that is good news. Because the truth is, when we think about needing help or needing rescue, needing a Savior, we're not going to be able to be saved by our own ability or morality. It's not about if you're good enough or if you try hard enough, but that we're saved, we're rescued through the Savior King named Jesus, whose very name actually means the Lord is salvation. So in verses 33 to 35, Simeon happily, joyfully blesses this family, but he also tells them a painful, soul-piercing truth. Your boy has a destiny. He's going to be at the center of great controversy because how people respond to this Savior is going to reveal their hearts. It's going to divide people into those who rise to life by faith or fall to sin and destruction. And he makes it very clear, people are not going to like it. They're not going to like that Jesus does this to their hearts. And in fact, many will oppose him and ultimately execute him. And the question is, which side are you going to end up on? You see, the big idea of this entire passage that we're reading this morning is that all people are waiting for salvation, but we only receive it by trusting in the Savior that's sent by God. It requires a step of trust and faith. You see, in the Gospel of John chapter 14, Jesus declares, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not a way, a truth, and a life but the only way, the only truth, the only life, and that no one comes to the Father, the Heavenly Father, His Father, God, except through me. And so as Simeon points out in this passage, trusting Jesus is not going to be easy. It's not going to be popular. And in fact, our human tendency is that we like to help ourselves. We like to save ourselves if we can the great American story of pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. That, you know, I can enjoy this life, I can live a long life, I can make it to heaven somehow because I ate right, I lived right, I had a good plan, I'm a good person. And I'm certain on the divine scales of justice that it'll tip in my favor. See, trusting in this God who came as a baby, this Jesus requires humility, vulnerability, to admit that we need a Savior, to turn ourselves and our lives and our future into His hands. That's what we call faith. Okay, Pastor Josh, well, 
you know, there's definitely times that we all want comfort. I'm not sure that I need a savior. Now, as the passage continues, we're going to discover that Simeon is not the only one waiting for a Messiah, and that comfort is not the only thing we need from him. Let's wrap this up in verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So here we go, verse 36 and 37, we meet another person, another character in our story. Her name is Anna. She's godly, she's elderly, she's 84 years young. We also find out that she's a prophetess. All that means is that God speaks to her and through her in a profound, personal, supernatural way. Third thing we learn about her is that she's been hurt by life. She'd only been married as a young woman, probably in their, in their time and in their culture, probably around 15, 16 years old, 18 to 20 at the most. But she'd only been married seven years before her husband died. And that in her grief, or in her piety, I don't know, but she decided she would stay single, a single widow for the past 60 years. She never remarried. She never had children. She's at an age where probably she's outlived her parents and most of her family and friends, and so she's alone. Now, what's amazing about her is instead of turning towards bitterness, she turns her grief into a lifelong prayer, communion, and connection with God. She's always at the temple. When the doors open, she's there, fasting and praying, loving God, serving God, worshiping God, day and night. You can picture it, right? A little bit in your mind, for those of you who have been around church a little bit longer. It's like those, those elderly church aunties who never miss church, come in their walker. They're, they've never missed a single event. They even come to the youth group events, and they're always hanging around church during the week, and you don't know if they live here or what's happening. But we love them and we bless them. We're so thankful for them. Now here we go, verse 38. As a prophetess, as someone who hears more clearly from God, that ch channel is a little bit more open sometimes, the moment that she sees this child Jesus, she doesn't even approach them. It doesn't say that she had any interaction with Joseph or Mary. The moment she sees him, she knows. She knows that that's who he was. She knows why he was sent. And immediately she starts praising God, giving thanks to God, and starts telling all the people around her. Because why? Because all of us, she says, are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And I want you to pay attention to what they're waiting for. That word redemption, it's a very churchy word. Or maybe if you don't go to church, you think of redeeming coupons or something ridiculous. Redemption is a big word. But I want you to hear it, how it's the richness of its implications in Jewish history. You see, in their Culture, if you were enslaved and poor, a substitute could come and pay what's called the redemption price to set you free, to buy back your life from literal slavery. That was in their culture. 
But in the Bible, the primary use and meaning of this word redemption is more spiritual. So you may remember, even if you don't go to church very often, the book of Exodus, the story of the Exodus, if you ever watched Prince of Egypt. And in that, God delivers his people from slavery and death in Egypt by having them paint the blood of an unblemished lamb on their doorpost, a substitute sacrifice to pay the redemption price so that the death for their sins would literally pass over them, which points all the way forward towards Jesus as not just a lamb of God, but the lamb of God who sacrifices himself on our behalf so that the judgment of God and death for our sin passes over us. That is what Anna is waiting for. And that is what Jesus does. He redeems us. And like Anna, those who are waiting for some kind of redemption can receive it and will receive it from this promised Messiah. You see, this rich word of redemption, it speaks to our need to be delivered from powers that hold us in slavery, in bondage, the power of sin in our lives that you think that nobody else knows, but God does. And its consequences, the power of death over us because that's the cost of sin. Vincent Fernier, Fernier, excuse me, is one of the most famous rock stars in the world that you do not know, inducted into the Rock Hall of Fame. He was originally in this band called The Spiders, but he found success rebranding as a band called Alice Cooper. All the older people know who I'm talking about. Now, Alice Cooper, he was known as the godfather of what's called shock rock. He would draw his influences from the theater spectacles and from horror films. And so his shows would include things like wearing demonic makeup, the way he described it, fake blood and guillotines, and also a live boa constrictor on stage. And all this stuff started off as kind of, just kind of this dark on-stage persona, a character, an act that he played. But over time, he became that character. It became his identity. And as sin is wont to do, it, it starts to bait us, tempt us, and, and then ensnare us in things that destroy us. And so his life started to spiral into alcohol use until he became an addict. Started to spiral into drug use as he got into heavier drugs and became addicted to cocaine, causing his wife to leave him. Little known fact, did you know that Alice Cooper was the son of a pastor? And he actually knew in his heart that he was running away from God. And in fact, back then, there was this, you know, it's dated, you don't have to look it up, but those of you who are older know, there's this Christian kind of like a media group called the 700 Club, and members of the 700 Club would take his records and burn them publicly because they felt that this man is so evil, so far gone, we need to deal with this evil presence. But God was not done with him. There came a day when he overdosed on cocaine, and as he, he could feel that something was wrong, he crawled into the bathroom, look into the mirror, and he wasn't wearing his stage makeup that day, but blood was running from his eyes. And in that moment, he cried out to the living God, flushed the rest of his cocaine down the toilet, 
called his wife, I need help. I'm ready to turn my life around. And she said, you need to prove it. And so one of the deals was, I will come back to you if you start attending church with me regularly every week. And in his words, I knew I came to a point that I would either have to accept Jesus and start living that life or die from the trap of this sin. Do you know that God heard his prayer, that very short crying out to God, and turned his life around? He has been walking with the Lord clean and sober since. And I know you hear about a lot of celebrities who say like, oh yeah, you know, give thanks to God, this, that, and the other, and you know, like kind of like, uh-huh. But this man, his life has completely changed. He's been sober for more than 40 years. He worships at a local church every week. When he's on the road on his tours, he will go visit a local church to go worship with them. He even has taught Sunday school occasionally. He started a nonprofit organization, a Christian nonprofit called Solid Rock, where they minister to teenagers, to get them off the street, give them something to do. And I look at this, you know, a lot of times we look at celebrities and think like these people who pretend like, like that they say, God, you know, it's like a, a fad that passes through celebrityhood. This is the real deal. And I think the lesson I learned from that is no matter how long you've been sitting, no matter how, how great your sin is, no one is beyond the forgiveness and freedom of Christ. Now, most of you seem like fairly decent people, and I'm no Alice Cooper. Do you know that you and I are no different than him? There is a family carpet cleaning business that shows its potential customers that they need to have this service to remove pet urine odors from their homes. And the way that they get these customers to, to agree to it is they, they darken the room, and then they turn on a very powerful black light. And it causes urine crystals to glow so you can see it. And to the horror of homeowners, it's not only on the carpet. You'll see a glowing usually on the walls, on the curtains, on the furniture, even on a lampshade, it turns out. One owner was so horrified, they begged the, the uh, business, please shut off the light. I'll pay whatever you want. I can't bear it anymore. I don't care what it costs. Please clean all this stuff up. You see, the stain was there all the time but it was invisible till the right light exposed it. And in the same way in verse 35, Jesus comes to us, shines his light on us to expose our hearts, it says in verse 35, not just to make you and I feel guilty, not to leave you that way, because he alone can clean it. He absorbs all of our sin at the cross. That's exactly why he came. And so you need to understand something about yourself. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 3 and that all of us sin. In Romans chapter 6, and that the price of sin is death but that the free gift of God is eternal life through this Redeemer who pays our price and sets us free from the power of sin and death. And so like Anna, some of you have been waiting so long for redemption. And Jesus didn't call you here. He's not calling you out this morning to shame you, but to redeem you, to release you, to set you free. So I want to invite you, don't give your brokenness to Jesus someday. Give it to him today. Don't say you're going to overcome your anger and your addictions and your self-absorption someday. Come to Jesus today. Don't confess your deep, dark secrets or your broken marriage someday. That day is today. Because the Bible says, if today you hear his voice for your soul and your salvation and your joy, do not harden your heart today. 
is your day. Waiting is about anticipation, expectation, the hope for something better to come. Simeon was waiting for comfort. Anna was waiting for redemption. They were looking and hoping and praying for God to do, to do something that would turn their worlds upside down, turn their lives right side up, and they found what they were waiting for by welcoming the Savior. So what about you? Beyond the holiday cheer, what are you really waiting for this Christmas? In your hurt and emptiness, where are you going to find comfort that lasts? How are you going to break the power of addiction or self-absorption in your life? Because you can't on your own. You've, you know because you've tried. Here is the one that you've been waiting for. He has come to us. And Christ wants to be at the center and the salvation of your Christmas to bring comfort and redemption in your life today and the hope of eternal life forever. So let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the birth of Jesus, that he's not just a footnote in history, but a Savior who has come to us today. Give us the humility and the courage to trust you, to say yes to you, to ask by faith for your presence and power to come into our suffering and sin in a real way. You are the one we've been waiting for, and we praise you for the greatest display of love and hope in all of history that Jesus came on purpose to die on a cross for our sins, to rise from the dead as our Savior, to bring joy out of our sorrow, purpose out of our pain, life out of death, comfort out of calamity, and redemption out of our ruins. And so it is in, our power, in his powerful and beautiful name that we pray. Amen.